0: Welcome to episode 68 of Photography Insights, your one-stop guide to interviews with people in the photography industry. We came across Twan Bui from his wonderful work in the Photo Classique magazine. He's a wedding and film shooter from Chicago who loves travelling too. And what I found really interesting was his choice of technology, i.e. lots of Polaroid. This seemed a strange concept, especially in the world of high resolution and detail found in the digital world. So have a listen to why Tuan shoots using large format and huge airplane lenses when using Fujipak film. We also talk about getting the right clients, the albatross of lenses, and Indian weddings amongst others. Eases through the random question to find out about his new Mexican dog documentary, Why Rice Keeps You Slip, and saving is the best option. As usual, the show notes provide some links, but well, check out the website, flogger.co.uk, to see extra content you can listen to on this podcast. And on there, you'll be able to sign up for the newsletter, and that way, every week, you'll get an email with the latest podcast. But before we move on, why not take a second to leave me a review and show your appreciation for the show. It'll only take you 30 seconds to open up the iTunes app or the podcast app, click on review and write a couple of words. I do appreciate each and every review and it helps to keep me motivated for the future. So all there is now is to say let's roll the music and wait our host. That's me. And welcome to the show, Twan Buey. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for asking. <laughs> no, Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Uh, it's really nice to have someone from um, the wedding world, the portrait world, I mean, uh, in large format. I mean, you're such a mixture.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's um, It's a really weird, you know, sometimes people have careers and then hobbies, but I have my career and hobby are the same so I kind of find myself exploring multiple avenues in this photography world.
0: Very lucky man, very lucky. Uh, Have you always known you wanted to do this then?
1: No, Um, you know when I was in high school and college I thought I was going to be an engineer because my dad was an engineer Um, and it took me until junior year of college until I realized that I hate engineering and it's awful. (laughs) So I was going to do photography and of course it's um, it's a much harder, much harder career than engineering. It, um, there are many more people wanting to do it. And of course, it's not nearly as lucrative, but um, it's more fun and it's more fulfilling.
0: Yeah, no, that's cool. Was that in Australia then?
1: No, that was in the States. That was here.
0: That was in the States already. Okay. Yeah. No, that's cool. So for anyone listening, um, I came across your work because of um, Photo Classic magazine, wasn't it? Yes, that's right.
1: Yeah, um, the article came out in the last issue.
0: So um, what I'll do is I'll... We can't put links to the magazine because they don't do um, online versions, do they? I don't know if you uh, know yeah. this. Yeah, um, but we'll put a link into the magazine anyway, but um, I'll try and scan some images, if that's okay with you. It's fine with me. Wicked. Um, so your work in there was a little bit about Um, how you shoot large format for weddings, and especially Polaroids. Yes. And I just looked at him and I thought, um, the colors are so lovely and they're so different. I mean, why did you jump to this?
1: Well, um, for a time, I was doing large format because it was something I didn't know how to do. It was sort of a challenge to myself. Okay. and the reason I shoot Polaroids or instant film in large format is because, um, you know, I grew up using film, but when I started treating it seriously commercially, I switched to digital and I'm just used to that instant gratification. So, of course, I shoot instant because it's a way to see immediately what I'm doing. Um, and when I started mm-hmm. large format, I thought that I'd be shooting just instant film for a bit, and then I switched to negative film, um, you know, once I figured out the ropes. Yeah. But um, I found that I've, I've stockpiled some multiple dozens of packs of instant film, and now I just shoot it because I love it. I love the look of it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's funny because it's very lo-fi. Like, large format has a reputation for being extremely um, you know, detailed, and uh, yeah. you know, the negatives have so much resolution compared to digital. But um, if you yeah. take it back to instant, and I don't even scan the negatives in the instant. I, um, I scan the positives. The resolution's not great. And it's, it's funny that, in fact, I'm doing something with a much larger, more expensive piece of equipment. Um, but the look is, you know, unparalleled. It's lo-fi and interesting, and uh, of course, you can do things with the focus and the depth of field you can't do with digital right now.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. It, I'm assuming that's FPC. Yes, FPC yeah. one
1: hundred C forty five.
0: Yeah. So long gone. Um, I mean, there's still stocks of it around, isn't there?
1: There are, and you know, I'll wait on eBay for the right price, but. Uh, yeah, they're going away fast, and the stuff that I have now, um, you know, the most recent stuff expired a few years ago, so it's only getting literally worse as it sits in my fridge.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a bit of a problem. I mean, I, I, um, I know the guy who sells Colour Infrared. Um, oh, yeah, Dean Benici, yeah. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I mean, did you see his notification recently? I did. Yeah, I mean that that's really scary and it's like it's a lot of money f- for me to try but by i would love to try it
1: but we- i think i have something like 50 sheets of 4x5 aerochrome in my fridge so <laughs> I, stock- I stockpiled that as well
0: <laughs> all right so you've got a lot of things in your fridge then uh, unfortunately yes <laughs> maybe we should do a tour around your fridge
1: <laughs> you know you want to I could bring the laptop over, and you can take a look at it.
0: Oh, that'd be interesting. <laughs> All, right.
1: All right, let's see if I can do this.
0: Let's see what we've got. All right. I don't know if it's bright enough in here, but let's see what we can do. So it is in your main kitchen, yeah?
1: Uh, it is not in my main kitchen. It's, uh, it's next to it, so this fridge. Um, entirely dedicated to my film. Oh, my so you can God. see at the bottom, these are all my 100C45 packs um, down here. Um, I've stockpiled a good bit of Lomochrome Purple, so I have lots of medium format of that, and I have lots and lots of instant and various flavors. Yeah. Um, there's some 8x10 up here that I've just gotten, so I'm excited to shoot that. And there's a ton of medium and large format negative film as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: of course, there's color infrared uh, in 35 millimeter. And uh, I think one of the, this box here is my stockpile of 4x5 Aerochrome. Um, yeah, so this is, of <laughs> course, it's several thousand dollars worth of film that's only getting worse. And uh, you know if I don't shoot it, um, I'll waste it, which is an interesting position to be in.
0: Yeah, now there's some good stuff there. Um, so are you a Fuji fan as well for color? Um, yes. Um, I do like Portra 400.
1: It's just mm-hmm. that uh, my favorite film is Provia 400X, which of course they stopped making also. And um, have a little bit of that stockpiled, and once that runs out, it's gone too.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a bit of an interesting time where we are with film at the minute. Like, so with, with all this going out, um, people like yourself that have experienced using this film, for me, it's not so bad. I've never really tried Provia. Um, I've never tried the Aerochrome yet, so it's. In, I do like the purple though, um, my friend yes. got, ordered some, and unfortunately made a mistake, he, he shot it all without telling me, made a mistake and went, uh, you haven't got any now, I've, I've wasted it mate, I was like, oh no, Oh, yeah, because um, they don't make it very often, do they?
1: No, they don't um the last time they made it i put in some ridiculous order for 40 50 rolls and i forgot about it and almost a year later it showed up at the door and was like what what lunatic ordered this much film and of course it was me i ordered that much film
0: oh dear was that a drunken night bend i think <laughs> <wasn't it? laughs>
1: something like that
0: yeah no that that's cool it, it's nice to see uh behind the scenes like that so you've got a, a lot of nice stuff that's for sure um how much longer do you think you can realistically get away with using like uh, fujifilm uh, the instant
1: well i have maybe 18 packs left and you know i can buy some more but Hmm. stuff that expires maybe 2008 and before um, just isn't as good and the colors go wonky okay so um you know i can probably shoot it for a few years if i keep buying new stuff yeah beyond three or four years i think it won't be any good anymore it'll be hard to find Film that isn't gone bad hasn't gone bad
0: yeah which is plenty of that right do you do you see and uh, do you foresee a good future and someone's going to bring some sort of pack film back
1: you know i don't know i'm not a i'm not a business person so i figure that hmm. the user base is always going to be there but it's going to be small and i know that the factory required to make this kind of thing is expensive so If you're not going to reuse old chemicals and you have to make new chemicals new rollers and so forth that's a very expensive proposition
0: yeah yeah definitely Uh, i think it puts a lot of people in unique positions really um i think one of the questions i've got to ask is how do you cope with traveling with such huge lenses (laughs) (laughs) well um for large format stuff i
1: have to restrict myself to one lens more or oh, less, okay. sometimes two. Um, and, you know, like for work, I use a, an enormous digital kit, like four lenses, two bodies, you know, multiple light stands, multiple flashes. Yeah. And I've learned how to pack that up efficiently and take it from place to place. A large format, just because the camera is a huge box in itself. Yeah. It's usually just one body, one or two lenses, and some packs of film. That's it. Um, okay. And I just deal with restrictions when I get there.
0: No, that's cool. So do you is that like a special order um like a certain couple only wants that sort of film or is it something you do in every sort of wedding
1: oh for weddings i do it almost every wedding if i have time wow Um, you know i'm still i still consider myself relatively new to large format i've been shooting (laughs) it for six years but yeah you know i'm much more proficient at shooting smaller format so i haven't broken off into its own separate oh you have to pay to get this sort of thing because you know until i can deliver a perfect perfect product i don't want to offer it and i think i'm good now but i'm not perfect
0: that's cool that's that's, that's a nice way i i, I think that's um, an honorable thing to be honest because it'd be like um shooting digital you, you've got to be good enough to people to pay you haven't you
1: right right
0: and, and you've you know, you you're in business, you've got a reputation to think of, aren't you? So so it's like a little play thing, artistic side? Something
1: like that, yes. I mean yeah. consciously it's also a business development thing. Like I do plan to offer it as an upgrade in the very near future.
0: Yeah. But let's look at some of your customers. Have they looked at your work before and said, I like that style and realizing it's actually a film shot or
1: yeah, actually, um, a good proportion of my clients are photographers themselves. So, <laughs> um, you know, I have several niches that I cater to in terms of wedding photography, but photographers is definitely one of them. And if they find me online and they see the film stuff, they get very excited. And I'm excited to, to photograph them with the stuff that they're excited about.
0: No, that, that's cool, God, they must, Are they harder to work with then?
1: No, they're very easy to work with. Um, <laughs> you know, um, you know, people, when they talk about weddings, they often bring up, oh, have you got any bridezilla?"s Oh, what are the worst stories you've had? But yeah. um, in my career, I've had a very, very easy time with it. Um, okay. I like, you know, almost all of my clients and my clients like me. And there's really never anything to complain about. It's never hard.
0: That's cool. I have to remember that. Um, I'm still right at the beginning of everything and I've debated about doing them for, um, probably about a year now i've done a little bit of second shooting oh okay um i shot my first um small wedding last year just like um three or four hours congratulations and i've got one more next month
1: oh that's very exciting i hope oh, you're really- excited to do it
0: i am i get so excited um Uh, Because I've been into film for a few years now. So even the very first one, I shot medium format and 35mm. Because I I like pushing myself. Okay. Um, It was stupid at times because that meant I had two (laughs) cameras with me. (laughs) And flicking between them, I was thinking... uh, The the one mistake I made was when I wanted to shoot 35mm, it was getting a little bit darker, so I needed flash. I didn't think about um how I was actually gonna focus using manual focus and oh hold my. a flash. I see. And look and look through the viewfinder. So I made a bit of a mistake there. So uh <laughs> you live and learn, don't you?
1: Oh gosh, manual focus film at night. Yeah, that's that's a tough one.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's indoor stuff, isn't it? So the light changes so much Right. Uh, you know, towards late afternoon, and um, you, you know we're not in the sort of places where it's really well lit. And we are in the UK.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: Land of constant sunshine, they call it. Exactly. You've got it. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know even what rain is over here. <laughs> well, actually, at the minute it's been really bad. Uh, we've had floods. Um oh. Yeah. It's been there's been some bad problems because of it as well. So uh, yeah. You know, something different though. Um, now, the one thing I noticed obviously in your article was this airplane lens. So, oh. talk to us about that.
1: Which one? I have several. <laughs> have several airplane ones.
0: Well, where okay. did you get them from? Where did you get this idea?
1: Well, okay, so the airplane lenses I use. Um, Or aerial surveillance lenses. Um, The Kodak Aero Ectar is probably the most popular and most well known of those. Um, And it's, you know, people love it because it's very fast. It's 178 millimeters, f2.5, but on large format, that's an equivalent of, I don't know, f0.8 or something incredible. Um, So the depth of field you get, or like the razor thin sheet of paper depth of field you get, is just something that is out of this world. Um, And, you know, that's, the appeal of some of the fast lenses you can get with aerial lenses um, you know there's another one the dolmeyer pentac which is 210 millimeters f2.9 also incredibly fast yeah. um and my party piece is this this lens i got off of ebay and it weighs 32 pounds it's a 600 millimeter f4 and it covers probably a 22 inch image circle so it's an enormous enormous lens it is so large yes it's um i mean it's it's unusable more or less i had to build a camera um in order to support it. Um, I did a little bit of research, and it appears to have come off of a 2 spy plane. Um, I don't know that for sure, but that's what I suspect. Um, And there is one person in the world who has used a similar lens. Um, Let's see. He has a 600 millimeter Perkin Elmer f3.5, and he had to build a camera using a wheelchair because it was so heavy, he needed the wheels to move it around. Yeah, so that's, it's a long-term project. I have that lens, and it's a bit of an albatross, Yeah. Um, but I will get it done because the lens deserves it.
0: <laughs> oh, God, that would be amazing. Make sure you tell me when that's done. <laughs> <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so you're not getting a converter to fit that to uh, a little Sony A9 or a mirror. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, it would make a fantastic astrophotography lens, but it's yeah. way beyond my, you know, if I'm going to put in the word to convert it, I don't want to. To, to illuminate a tiny little sensor. I want it to illuminate a huge, huge sheet of foam. Yes.
0: I mean, that's surely that would do even bigger than 8x10. Surely it'd be, like, ultra-large format.
1: I think it can illuminate 22 inches. Um, as to whether that's sharp or not, I don't know. So I'm, I think, like, 11x14 for sure. Bigger, maybe. We'll yeah.
0: see. Well, there's definitely a few people out there that can probably help with certain parts of it in there.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's... It's a very long-term project, and I haven't even—I've shot—I haven't shot eight by ten yet, and I still got two eight by ten cameras and have yet to set up. So one step at a time.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's amazing, though. Even eight by ten—that—that would be awesome. I mean, have you seen Justin Brookie?
1: I don't think I know that name.
0: Okay, so he's the tintype guy who shoots large format on the streets in New York. Okay. Um. And he, he's progressed um, bigger. Uh, and I think it's amazing that he does it on the street. Just, just opens up like the back of his van and there's the <laughs> dark room. Awesome, really, really fun guy as well. Cool. He sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah well, it's a large format and it is. Like you say. Um,
1: do you know of Jeffrey Berliner? No. Oh, he runs Penumbra Foundation in New York. And uh, he his thing is tintypes also. Uh, he has a tintype studio at Pernumbra Foundation, and oh my god, he has this basement that is full of large brass and large cameras, oh. and it is an incredible vault of, of desire. Um, he showed me that basement once, and yeah. oh my god, my, the drool flooded the room. <laughs> uh, oh, But um, yeah, he, he also shoots really, really nice tintypes, and I've had the pleasure of um, assisting him at um, the Jazz Age Lawn party when him and his crew were shooting tintypes there. Oh yeah,
0: stuff. So do do you like that style as well then?
1: Oh, I mean I do, but um, you know you have to pick and choose, and I choose not to do ten types because that is another thing that I have to start at zero on. The same Mm. reason I don't develop my own film because Mm. I'd have to start at zero, and I want to concentrate on getting good at what I am doing first
0: do you know i i like that i'm exactly the same and i know some people are the total opposite out there that they like this um right i'm an artist i have to control every element to make my image
1: Ah, uh, yeah i understand
0: yeah yeah i do yeah and mm. I, I just think i'm simple i have to do one thing and try and do it well um So I I can understand what you're saying there. It's um, I think it's a big thing to learn how to develop really well, how to scan well, how to print well, Um, and that's just you know um, 35 and medium format. Never mind large format.
1: Right, right. Oh
0: gosh, I mean, if I if I could get the
1: knowledge of how to develop uh, in an instant without having to learn, I would do it. I would love to know how, and I'd love to do it myself. It's just yeah it's one of those things where you know if you put in a little effort you can learn a little bit but to get yeah. good you have to put in so much effort that it's insurmountable
0: yeah I, I think the biggest thing you always need is someone beside your side yeah um, a and mentor yeah you do yeah and obviously them things are not always simple or you don't always know someone you are too busy um, you know you, you might not mix in them circles as well right uh, and That's taken me time. Um, I was lucky enough to meet someone last year, become good friends. He taught me how to dev, Um, so I can do it. I choose not (laughs) to do it because um, time is a big problem for me. I I have young children, you see, so. Ah, okay. Yeah, that's why time's so critical. Um, That's why I'm literally doing two things just before you, uh, (laughs) you came on. I was like, can I squeeze this in? Can I do this? Yeah. Well, that's part of it that, that's really interesting I think uh, I do like your approach um, I suspect in 10 years or something you'll be doing tin types or you'll change <laughs> or oh, dear.
1: oh dear tin types are expensive <laughs> and it's already so much money spent on film and vintage gear I uh, I really hope I don't do tin types
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, it's something um When Justin was talking to me about it, I was like, oh, man, I want to do this, but um, I don't think it's achievable. (laughs) And then um, when you start talking to more wet plate people, you're like, oh, but Andy, I've been doing this, like, 30 years, and you're like, "Uh, right, and you want me to learn this. (laughs) With no help, it's like, ooh. Because I think the other thing is... um, you're in a good place where there's enough people doing it still right uh, and I think America's got the uk's a little bit different um, and because we're a smaller country um so we've got less experts in that sense um but yeah the greatest thing about um this podcast channel is it it's allowed me to meet these people and um, help educate me as well
1: yeah yeah your podcast is really cool I and mean, just I briefly scrolled through the other guests you've had on, and uh, it's a really nice mix.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I love the variety. Um, I think some people uh, work very differently. I'm a bit more, uh, if I'm in a mood for a large format, I'll try and contact some people. If I'm in a mood for a bit of digital, I'll contact them. Um, but sometimes it, it doesn't work that way. Uh, I've got some two street photographers coming up, Um, right because that's how i started i love street i'll never stop doing that um and then occasionally i'll see something say like wildlife and i think i want a wildlife photographer no one will reply i want architecture Uh, and i've only got my own and i love it and again no one uh, will come on
1: well i can give you some names if you like of people that i know that I'd probably be interested in talking to you, but who knows? I can't speak for them.
0: Oh yeah, 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 that'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. As you know, the the variety is ace because I think um, it gives something different for the listeners, and and I think even like yourself, um, it's nice for you to listen to other people too because we all learn off each other, don't we? We certainly do. Yeah, and I, I'm you know I'm a big believer in in things like that. Um, how important is the technology to your work, then.
1: Oh, that's um. Do you want me to talk about all technology or just? Yeah, uh, yeah, analogue? all
0: technology, because obviously you you know you shoot both digital and analog.
1: Well, um, you know, with digital stuff, I was at the philosophy that they're all tools in the toolbox. So, like, I never got really into the gadgetry of it. You yeah. know, my cameras are my work cameras are Canon Five D Mark Four, so they're modern, they're up to date, and okay. they're really cool. But you know, yeah. I don't fetishize that stuff. Um, you know, I will always have the latest generation of sensors because I really like, you know, high ISO work, um, mm-hmm. and the better, the cleaner the digital images at high ISOs, the happier I am. Yeah. Um, but I found that for analog stuff, I unfortunately have broken my own rule, and I really fetishize the gear, and it is very important. <laughs> um, I got to the point where I'm not even. It's not so much that I lust after certain cameras anymore, but I've had two cameras that are custom-built for me. Um, you may have seen these in Photo Classic, but um, I have two um, large-format cameras that are one of a kind. One of them is a Kershaw Patent Reflex. Um, it started as Kershaw Patent Reflex from, from the UK, mm-hmm. but I've had it modified with a Lindhoff uh, 4x5 graph lock rotating back, yeah. and it has three printed lens boards. Uh, the work was done by Graphlex Parts, um, really cool guy, Graham Burnett. You should talk to him too. But okay. now with this camera, um, its top shutter speed is one eight hundredth of a second. It's fairly fast. I can attach, you know, all my fast f two point five lenses to it. And yeah. it's a relatively small camera compared to other large four by five bosses. So it's very portable. I can take it on planes. Um, and it's called Mr. Stripes because it has green racing stripes on it. And <laughs> I love that camera to pieces. <laughs> um, no one else in the world has one right now. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the other one is a, um, a Thornton Pickard, um, also a quarter plate camera from the UK, early 1900s. But I've had that one modified with an Instax wide back um, from a Lomo Instant. So that camera takes just regular instant wide film, uh, Instax wide film and it has 3D printed lens boards with the same lens mount so I can mount anything I want to the front of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a working Instax wide SLR, which is also something that's you know not easy to find in the world. You find it; it's custom made by someone.
0: That's cool. Do the photos look any different because they're on large format?
1: Oh my god, man! Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. So this, yeah, the Instax Wide. If you buy like an Instax Wide three hundred or something, I don't know what the specs of the lens are. Some kind of f eleven plastic job or you yeah. know three element glass job, and you know it's a fine lens, um, but. You know, I can fit an f2.5 lens on there if I want, or I can fit, I think what's on there right now is um, a Darlow Petzval, it's 150 millimeter ish f4, you know, from the mid-1800s. Wow. So I can make pictures of that that look, you know, really, really different than what you can get a regular Fuji Instax camera.
0: Right. Because so I wondered if it was um, a limitation of the film itself, because obviously Instax is okay, but you have all the rubbish that goes with it and the average consumer click 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 if you know what i mean just a snap
1: well i mean you can treat instax as like a snapshot device or if you mount it on a large from an slr you can treat it as a serious like carefully compose and take the shot device um, yeah. and you know the, the film isn't as high resolution as fp100c45 yeah um, it's very low resolution compared to other instant films and definitely compared to negative or positive films but right uh, in terms of the image area it's still the largest instant film currently in production Yeah. which is i think something that i'm going to use more and more of you know when my stocks of
0: other instant run out yeah well at the end of the day you can only use what's available can't you right yeah um i think it's a shame though that there isn't someone making a high quality film like that well but- i agree it's like you say, it, it's probably such a small niche market now, isn't it?
1: It is. Definitely is.
0: And I think film as a whole is already a niche. It's
1: interesting because I think there's a resurgence. Uh, you know, there is, uh, yeah. Yeah. It is a niche that isn't... Um, you know when photography became a thing and painting went down the tubes and photography you know, allowed access to the masses of image production, right? Yeah. Um, painting just limped along for hundreds of years and people still paint right but Mm -hmm. it's not a it's not a common hobby and when you want to reproduce an image you don't think of a painter first you think of a photographer first Mm -hmm. Um, but the film resurgence now I think is a it's something greater than painting was in terms of it's still very accessible even though it's more difficult to use in digital Um, it's still very very easy to pop a piece of film in your small camera and even if you're like a you know, uh, a Lomo Diana user, you know, or a Holga user, Um, the process of popping in a roll of film and shooting it and sending it off and getting images back is still very, very easy compared to picking up a paintbrush and trying to paint something. So I think that film will be with us for a long time in a pretty large way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I I hope it stays. Um, I know, obviously, Kodak released their figures recently, and it's all looking good from their point of view, which is ace yeah uh, but that was kodak here kodak class is it any different in uh kodak usa said anything
1: uh you know i don't know no, no i think no. you're more uh in tune with that sort of stuff than i am
0: no no that's cool yeah i think it's because uh, a lot of those bloggers follow each other's work so uh, as soon as someone gets older news like that it gets around everywhere yeah um how do you deal with, like, the delay and patience needed shooting film? So I don't just mean you. I mean, obviously, like, your guests.
1: Um, well, uh, for me, I only had to wait 90 seconds for my, uh, my instant film to develop. Um, mm. For my negative and positive film stuff, of course, it's kind of... Um... So this is interesting. Back in the day, right? Mm. Um, You used to take Polaroids before you shot your negative film, just to see how the exposure was and how the composition was. Um, So now I'll let you in on a dirty secret. Um, I take digital tests, right? And if it starts to look (laughs) right, then I take it on Polaroid. Um, So I know it's going to look all right, unless, you know, something in the camera messed up or I forgot to do something. Um, With negative film, it's, you know, a little bit longer of a wait. But again, usually I have a digital camera on me, so I'll take a digital test and kind of know how to look when it turns out. So I don't really have to wait that long to know
0: that that's to be honest that's just sensible though isn't it uh
1: for work stuff yes for commercial
0: stuff i always test digital because i want it to come up
1: you know for my personal life when i'm traveling to something i'll take film cameras and then i won't test with digital because Hmm. you know i don't want to bring along the extra stuff and i kind of like the idea of very very delayed gratification there you know but this is again just for very personal travel photography or you know at-home photography
0: yeah exactly yeah Uh, i think the It's funny how you separate your brain in that sense, because I know you would do a great job, and you know you would, but it's that risk, isn't it? Right. And I think that's a a big thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, like, I can't imagine that, you know, if I were suddenly teleported to the, the 70s, right, and had to shoot a wedding on film, Mm-hmm. My God, I'd be so scared. You know, I I feel like I have the skills, but just not being you know, able to look at the images. You know, what if I, you know, metered wrong and everything's two stops, you know, underexposed? Like, oh, I would die.
0: Oh no, it's scary because obviously I know a lot of people now that um, shot back then. Um, when I first started shooting, um, uh, I ran into this guy. So he's an aerial photographer. Hmm, okay. That's how he made his money and he did weddings previously and he said to me his boss was so tight he would give him one role to shoot a wedding <laughs> so John. imagine if i said to you uh right i want you to shoot my wedding there's your role go
1: you know i read in Helmut newton's autobiography you know before he was a big fashion guy he shot weddings okay. um um, you know, in between his photojournalist career uh, in the Australian army, and he would say that he would set up his tripod in front of the church, along with three or four other photographers, right? Mm. And when the couple came out of the church, you know, he and the other photographers would try to sabotage each other, and, like you know, kick each other's tripods or like you know, jostle each other's cameras, what? and then try to take the one shot, right? They take the one shot, and then run up to the couple and try to give them their business card and say, "Call me, I'll give you the picture." So their wedding photography back in the day was just one photo. And maybe it was good and maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was blurry because some dude kicked your tripod and you were taking the picture.
0: Wow. That's crazy, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh oh, oh, it's so, so different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I I think both of us could do it. I just think some shots would not be, like you say, exposed well. Right. Are you um How's your ability to expose manually?
1: Oh, it's terrible. Absolutely okay. terrible. Yeah, I mean, I'm not... You know, I grew up on film, but I also grew up with automatic cameras. Uh, okay. The first camera that I, I seriously used when I got serious about photography was a Canon T70. So, you know, it had an aperture priority setting. Um, yeah. It had a built-in meter, um, and I relied on it. And ever since then, I've used cameras with automatic meters. Um, up until of course the digital era, or sorry, the um the era when I started using large format. And now I use my phone to meter. Um I'm absolutely terrible with metering with my eye. I mean, I know Sunny 16 and I have to calculate from there, but that's about it.
0: <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um Do you know what? It's something you can learn really easy. I mean, I've been shooting a less the um a shorter time than most people. mine's only like four years. I've gone backwards from digital and I shoot analog now. And last year, I forced myself to start shooting totally manual um, with n- nothing at all. And <laughs> you know what? It was the best thing I could ever have done. Yeah? Yeah. I-, I can now go out and I don't have anything with me and the pictures are exposed. Uh, really good. I'll, sh- I'll show you some work. And um, right. Okay. Okay. I'm pretty sure you'll you'll not be able to tell. I haven't done a digital test first. <laughs> which, but this The thing is, though, I have a reason for doing it because my vision got worse a couple of years ago. And um, I have to wear glasses now to see close-up, right. but it destroys my long vision. Now, photography is the worst thing for people like me because I, if I'm shooting someone at a distance, say a model... I can see it but if I look at my camera I can't see the shot I can't see if it's in focus (laughs) oh dear yeah so I've had to go uh, glasses on glasses off and I hate it it does my head in so I decided to try and alleviate that is to shoot analog because you don't have this screen you don't have this meter so it's about you just using your skill and just focusing right I see And honestly, it it works so well. Um, Earlier this year, I went into uh, an abandoned uh, building and we did some fabulous work around it. So my friend was there with his Leica uh, film camera and then he took digital as well to try and make sure he got some shots. And I only shot um, medium format. Uh, and when we got our pictures back, he got some lovely shots inside. And I said, oh, did, what do you think these? And he went, did you shoot them on film as well? And he was like, <laughs> yeah, I says, I didn't mean to remember. And he's like, bloody hell, you did a good job.
1: <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you yeah. got this going. Apparently, you've learned it pretty fast.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, and it takes m- months if you keep doing it. Um, All right. Well, you know, at the end of the day, it was a reason for doing it the constraint of my eyesight sort of pushed me um because even using like a thing like you do like using your phone i've got light meter on there um i can't read the iso it's got the old-fashioned look of a light meter so you can see um the shutter speed really well but the iso is so small it's like well i might as well brought a digital camera with me. (laughs) i need to get my glasses out so uh you have to come up with ways to help you when you get older trust me you'll learn (laughs) all right (laughs) Uh, but anyway so when you're shooting film and um you're instant with guests at wedding are they patient with you are they happy to wait uh, like your wedding couple are they know you're going to be a bit more slower sort of thing
1: yeah they're pretty happy to wait and um Usually when I shoot uh, film at weddings, I have an assistant. Um, And if I know I have an assistant, oh gosh, it takes a load off my shoulders, literally. Um, Because I can say, hey, set up the large. And when I'm done, say, here, pack this up. And I can go back to shooting digital. So it takes almost no time. Um, Which is, you know, I shoot instant, but I don't show my couples the instant stuff right away. Because we don't have 90 seconds to wait around to look at it. So usually I'll shoot it and I'll, um, I'll peel them later on when there's a moment to rest.
0: Oh, right, okay, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. So is that like a nice big surprise bundle you can give to the bride and groom?
1: Um, a little bit. You know, I I upload those uh the scanned instant films uh, into the gallery. Okay, but I don't give them the physical copy. Um, cool. And the physical copy is not actually as good as what you see on the screen because you know on the screen I can fix the contrast a little bit. And, <laughs> you know, cool. there's something with instant film. There are always little dots on the edge. Like there's um. There's parts where the the film doesn't get covered with the chemicals properly, and there's always these little white dots. Ah, very annoying. So I fixed those in post as well.
0: Okay. But when you've got the actual, it's not a Polaroid. It's hard to get out the habit of calling it. Um,
1: Right, right, yeah.
0: Yeah, but when you've got the instant, I think some of that imperfectness, I don't know what the correct word is, is nice, isn't it? There are some things I like
1: and some things I don't. I mean, I love the borders, um, mm-hmm. You know, the, where the chemicals trail off to the edge. yeah. But, you know, like, I hate those little white bits. And then, you know, with the shooting, yeah. the film that I shoot, um, you tend to get green or purple streaks in older fp 100 c 45 okay. And you really don't like the look of that. Green does the nastiest things to the skin, and purple is even worse. So um, if I get that on, you know, a piece of film that I shoot, then I try to correct it a little bit in post.
0: Yeah, I know I've underexposed negative... Uh yeah negative film um, color and the black went an awful green yeah and i couldn't i couldn't get it back and i was really gutted um because it was a family holiday and i was trying to get this abbey uh at suns uh, at sunset yeah and there was a lovely sunset and it was just like the shadows and i made a mess of it and the best photo i got was on my mobile
1: yeah i mean film is a crapshoot like that you don't shoot film if you want 100 do you
0: that's right yeah exactly and the other thing i didn't think about was um i i couldn't see um down the waist level finder uh, because it was medium format as well and um so i couldn't exactly line it up properly uh, and so far, and I was like, oh, to, to get it in the right position, it needed to be a lot higher. And uh, there was no way for me to physically get up there. So I was like, oh, I was guessing. So it, it's easy with a mobile, isn't it? Because you can just, just don't like it. Try again. Well, um, are you shooting a TLR, SLR? Uh, no, that was, um, it's a Bronica. So it's um, an S. Okay.
1: Right. Um, you've shot those upside down with right? Have you shot those upside down with anything at the waist level finder? If you want some height, you just hold it upside down and hold it up, so you can look up into it.
0: Do you know what? Yeah, it's a good idea, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it was long exposure, though. You see. Ah, okay. All yeah, right. yeah. That that's why, because it was sunset. It needed to be. Um, I see. Probably um, one tenth. That sort of area. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That's but, tough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you need to plan well. And it's the one time where um, waist level finders are that little bit harder. Right. And and doing portraits as well, yeah. Like, say you have to tilt on the side. And that's confusing enough, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Jesus. When I first got medium format and I was lining up on the street and I was like, I can't get this level. It right. really <laughs> strange. Would you like that?
1: Yeah, it's still a struggle for me. I mean, that the unnatural like tilt left and tilt right thing is—it's oh, hard to get used to, and I'm still not quite used to it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite it's quite fun in that sense. But when you um, so I've done a, like a few shoots with models, and you're like, I'm really trying to get this straight. What's well, waist level? So I often stand on a stool so I can see down into it. <laughs> because if I tilt it on its side, I just can't line it up. <laughs> I'm going I can't I'm just all over the place, honestly.
1: Yeah, I've stood on many step ladders and stools to shoot in large format, because I mean there is the hold it upside down trick, but it's so much harder to focus when you're like trying to balance it and keep it steady.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um what's one of the most sort of um, memorable shoots you've had then?
1: Oh, um, can I talk about a digital shoot, or should it be an analog oh,
0: shoot? Oh, yeah, easy, yeah, yeah.
1: Right, so if you go to my, um, my wedding website, there's a picture of an elephant. And that mm-hmm. elephant is during a wedding parade in Ahmedabad, India. And, you know, you've heard stories about Indians driving, I'm sure. Like, uh, you know, a two-lane highway turns into a four-lane, and it's like, you know, all the rules are ad hoc. So <laughs> basically, there aren't the rules. Yep. So I was shooting a wedding in Ahmedabad, and it is on the ring road around the city. And the parade, which consisted of four horses and the goonsman and his best man on top of an elephant. Um, they're they're riding along the side of the ring mm-hmm. road, right? And their family's parading in front of them. There's a band and there are firecrackers going off and it's chaos. And I decided I want a photo of the elephant at sunset. So um, oh, I have Adam my assistant hold two flashes um, pointed you know at the elephant and I ran across the highway to get the shot because he did far back. And you know cars are whizzing by me, and the median is fenced off, so I can't stand in the median. So I'm standing in the highway, I'm back against the fence, and I'm photographing the elephant, and I'm yelling at him, one up and one down, because I need him to point the flash in a certain direction. And he's like pointing it all wrong, and I'm just yelling at him, gesturing with my fingers. And meanwhile, these trucks are whizzing by my face. Um, And I'm taking this shot like multiple times just to get the one perfect one, and I do get it. And after I get it, I put my camera down, and I look left, and I realize that the entire time I've been standing in a lane, and this is not like standing in a lane on a highway, but standing in a lane in a highway where cars are using like, you know, one lane is two and trucks yeah. and like these little uh, taxis and things are just going by my face the entire time. And I just didn't notice because I was so focused on the shot that, you know, I was there and they were all swerving around me and honking at me. And I just, Jesus. you know, I so easily could have died for this shot. And, you know, it's a nice shot, but not worth dying over. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, that's one of, I think, three times I've risked my life for a photo oh my god um, seriously they all involve adam um <laughs> yeah <laughs> same trip in india um i was photographing a couple on a train because you know you know mumbai is famous for the trains right yeah so i'm having them lean out the side of the train and you know this train's not going too fast but there are these, these poles that are right by the train track and if you, you hang outside the train at the, at the right time you know your body will get cut in half So, I'm leaning outside the train, and Adam is holding onto my strap because I'm leaning so far out, right? And I'm holding my camera out, extended in one hand. And I tell the couple, you know, like, if you see a pole coming, you got to yell at me so I can come back in. And I take a bunch of shots of them. Um, And, you know, thankfully I wasn't beheaded or anything like that. But I realized that if they didn't see a pole, if they didn't tell me in a loud enough voice, I would have died. Um, And that shot was not that cool. Uh, (laughs) Definitely not worth dying for. That's brave yeah that really idiotic is. idiotic uh i'll try never to risk my life for
0: a shot again <laughs> wow that's really different uh, do you think that's um quite typical of an indian style wedding then
1: um you know i've only shot one indian wedding in india most of the indian weddings i've shot have been in in chicago in the states yeah um so i think so the the indian wedding i think in some cultures, especially. Some Indian cultures, especially mm-hmm. um Gujarati, the wedding is a chance to show people um, how cool you are, yeah so you you know at, at your son or daughter 's wedding you put out a lot of money and you invite a lot of people and you have a lot of fireworks and elephants and bands and firecrackers and all kinds of things right mm-hmm. so that wedding uh, was one thousand two hundred guests it was you know oh. six yeah it was six days over like you know a week, and you know there is ah oh, there is incredible the um, the pageantry, oh, gosh, it was like a small Lollapalooza, how many performers there were, like singers, dancers. Um, the bride and groom came in on a, a cart that was being pulled by, uh, by bearers, and, you know, they had an honor guard, and, oh, it was over the top, and it was so cool.
0: Jesus.
1: But, uh, you know, India is one of those states where, uh, one of those countries where it's, you know, a lot of different cultures, right? So, like, oh, that yeah. was a Gujarati wedding, and, you know, yeah. I don't know what a wedding in another part of the country would be like. Um, But I can say that the Gujarati really know how to throw a party.
0: (laughs) So how many days did you have to stay to do that?
1: Um, It was a six-day shoot over the week, but we ended up staying there for three weeks, just hanging out with the the groom and the bride and their family and friends.
0: Wow. I bet that was very colourful as well. Oh, yes. Yes. Because they have amazing dresses and, I mean, males, females, it doesn't matter, does it? Right, yeah. And uh you know the groom
1: took his bridal party or his his um, his his side of the wedding party to um a shop to get outfitted. And me and Adam, my assistant, we got outfitted at the same shop. So we were also wearing sherwanis and turbans and
0: we looked really cool too. <laughs> oh, that's amazing, mate. Sounds like yeah. a good experience then. Oh yeah, it was a fantastic experience. Yeah, no, that's really cool. That's a hell of an experience. Um Now, obviously, wedding photography is one of these things. We're not talking about bridezillas here. We're talking about burnout. Um, I know so many people that have left the industry, they've done it for decades, maybe even done it for 10 years. How are you going to cope with it? What's your thoughts on that? Well, as I said earlier, weddings
1: or photography was not my first career, right? Yeah. So um, I told myself fairly early on that I would only shoot things I want to shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means I don't do family portraits, I don't do Christmas pictures, I don't do pet pictures, I just do weddings. Because I feel that not only am I taking pictures that are fun to take, but I'm mm-hmm. also making artifacts that last beyond my own lifespan. I yeah. mean, if you think of jobs that can uh, leave a lasting impact on the world, there are very, very few. right? Yeah. And in this sense, I'm, I'm making these artifacts that are precious to people. And you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, like people's grandkids, their great-grandkids will see these pictures. Yeah, um, and that is very, very gratifying to me. Um, you know, I never want to get to a place where I, I look, at my work like something that I have to go to do instead of get to go to do. Um, so I very purposefully tailor uh, my marketing to a certain kind of couple. And okay. by and large, the couples that hire me are really cool people, and it's a pleasure working with them. Um, You know, of course, when I started, uh, I took every job I could get, right? Yeah, of course. And, and, you know, as my, I guess, uh, my business got better and my prestige grew, um, I could be a little more targeted with my marketing. Yeah. Um, And so, like, the couples that I attract are mostly, when you throw a wedding, you can generalize people into two categories. One kind of person, they're about to party. And the second kind yeah. of person, they're about the people, right? Yeah. Um, so the first kind of person like, oh, they're they're gonna get some really cool flowers and cool DJ, right? And they're gonna throw this big party and they're gonna look really awesome and their bridesmaids are gonna wear awesome dresses. And yeah. it's all about how it looks. And that's really cool. Um but the second kind of person, when they're thinking about a wedding, they think like, oh I can invite this person, that person, or it won't be cool to see like my friend from college again or my cousin I haven't seen in ten years. Yeah. And they're more about, you know, like connections. And the latter kind of person is my target market. So if you look on my website, um, there's not a single picture of decor or a dress or anything. It's all pictures of people. And because of that kind of marketing, I kind of attract the kind of couple that I like. Um, nothing wrong with the couple that wants to throw a cool party because mm-hmm. I throw a cool party. But um, because I specialize in this one uh, you know, subset of people that throw weddings, I feel mm-hmm. like um, it's easier for me to, to mesh with because they get what I'm trying to do. And, uh, you know, I get what they want and I try to give them what they want. Just when you distill it down, emotional pictures of people.
0: Mm, That's really nice, mate. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice that you, you know, you found your group of people. That's really cool. How many years do you think it takes to get there?
1: To the point where I can, uh, you know, determine the kind of clients I want? Yeah. (sighs) You know, I started shooting weddings in 2006. So it's been 13 years.
0: Wow, that's a long time
1: um i think probably around year six or seven yeah to this point
0: no that's interesting because i've got yeah. some mates that have been doing it probably between two and four years okay and you can already see this difference um where they're, they're charging more now because their work has improved so much uh, and it's really cool to see that they're improving yeah um and then when I've just done the odd thing, I'm thinking, "Oh God, I don't, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I don't know how to post people because it's not natural for me." So, like you say, um, I'm I'm about the person. Right. So, I did a pre-wedding shoot for the uh, wedding I'm going to do. Never done one before. Um, hmm, okay. So I had no idea what to do. I, I'm not really into planning too much because stuff never goes right. And I think if you aim to do something too much and you can't do it, then, you know, you're going to have a bit of anxiety and stress. And yeah. uh, to make it even harder, I never used the camera before. What? i would never used the camera before. My goodness had, gracious. Yeah, i would had to lend a camera because um, my pro lens died earlier this year and i didn't really know what i was going to do i just said yeah i'll, I'll do the wedding because it's like 10 months away and i'll sort right. something and one of my friends said oh, I'll, I'll lend you my gear so i picked his gear up last week um i did a quick shoot with my daughters and my wife at the weekend and then the next day i was doing the pre-wedding so i was like i'm probably going to get two chances to use the camera before the wedding
1: <laughs> my goodness and it turned out okay she loved them wonderful
0: and that's the only thing isn't it right i'll never be happy enough i know i can always do better but um the main thing is the bride's happy so and uh, you know her husband our future husband was happy the mom and dad were happy um but i was sensible i i i actually asked if the mom and dad wanted to come along because um i'm friends with the dad I've known him a long time and I thought, if they come, they might be able to hold my flash for me. <laughs> uh,
1: yes, the classic unpaid assistant trick.
0: Exactly. Yes. So, uh, and of course, they were willing. And, you know, I wouldn't have got the shots without it. So, um, so that normally, see, I'm a Nikon shooter, uh, an Olympus for mirrorless. So, uh, this was a Canon. And I was like, I haven't held a Canon in three years. Uh, and it's high-end gear. So uh, I've never used high-end gear before, and um, I was like, oh, this is a bit strange. So, you know, I said to mate, all I want to do is change aperture and shutter. Um, I'll fix me all the settings, and then I'll work from there. And then there's less to go wrong in there. Right. That seems sensible. Yeah. And I tested my flashes. Uh, so my flashes actually work with that. So I'm all set now. Um the wedding's going to be uh, quite dark rooms, right? So, I was a little bit worried. Um, so I shoot with a Nikon D200, right? Which is like 13 years old, so ISO performance is um, it doesn't really know what ISO is, <laughs> <laughs> so I normally push it to about 400 or 600 at a max, okay? Um and I, I had a quick walk around the room earlier this year, um, took a few photos, and I was like, my God, it is so dark. Um, even at f2.8, there's there's no way it's going to work. Um, yeah. So I thought, I, I need a higher ISO camera. So I should be all right, and I'm going to plan on taking the flashes just to have them set up. Um, ceiling's white, so I can bounce. Okay. So I've got in my mind, I've got a backup there. That's yeah, good that you have
1: such a solid plan,
0: uh, yeah, yeah, it's all it's all in here <laughs> yeah um so I am looking forward to it. i'm I'm gonna be very nervous, I think the day before, um not probably been nervous on the day, but um I get swept into the wedding thing. I' don't know about you, I enjoy it, me too, yeah, when, when when often like uh the groom and the bride and everyone's doing their speeches I, i'm just stood there listening sometimes thinking "Oh, I'll, I'll get a shot but they're doing a good job and they're having a laugh and <laughs> yeah i think it's really nice um i think they're some of my favorite moments like when i've been doing second shooting i've gone around and just done the candid stuff and uh yeah i've had some really nice comments back for so that's really nice um good. Right, so we are at the end of that section, and I'm going to move you into my random questions. All right. Are you ready? No, but let's do it anyway. (laughs) So, what country would you like to move near America, and why?
1: Wait, it has to be near America?
0: So, you can move any country around the world Uh nearer.
1: Near America, yeah, I see. Hmm. Well, um, I think Mexico. I um, I started this project recently, where uh, well, okay. recently last year, where I've been literally chasing dogs down the street in Mexican villages right. um, and taking street photos of dogs. Eventually, this hopefully this will be a book project. Um, but I um, I speak Spanish decently, I'm not decently compared to a, an American. Maybe not decently compared to a Mexican person. <laughs> but I spent a lot of time in Mexico and I would love to spend more time there to take pictures of street dogs. Um, okay. There is a book called What is a Dog? Um, by these two biologists, social biologists um, uh, named Coppinger. And they spent a lot of time in the dump in Mexico City um, just researching the dogs there, like watching them and noting their movements. And, mm-hmm. you know, basically doing a really deep dive on how they move, how they reproduce and all that. And it's fascinating. And you know, um, what I want to do with street dogs is kind of like a, an anthropological, ethnological street photography approach, where it's not just like pictures of a dog, pictures of another dog, another dog. Yeah. But following the same dog, you know, like over several days, you know, yeah. seeing where it eats, where it sleeps, who it associates with, and so forth. And Mexico is a fantastic place for that. Because unlike in the U.S., you know, like in the U.S., if you see a dog on the street, then it's a stray and mm-hmm. must have belonged to someone, must have ran away. And it's just wrong, right? But in yeah. Mexico... There are village dogs, and they're not strays because they weren't born in a house and didn't escape. They just live on the street, were born in the street, will die in the street. And it's very fascinating that there are so many of these dogs all over the country, like in the largest cities and in the smallest ones. I would love to spend time in Mexico uh, following those dogs.
0: So bring it to Chicago. (laughs) Well, I'll see what I can do for you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So if Australia is beer england is tea what drink is the usa
1: um goodness gracious probably whiskey but um i would like to answer in a more specific way um in chicago there is i'll just i'll give you the name of it it's called malort chicago is malort it's a wormwood liqueur uh, and you can only find it in Sweden and Chicago. It's a Swedish drink originally, but uh, for some reason, Chicagoans adopted this drink. And, uh, you know, absinthe is wormwood plus like... You know, yes, uh, and absinthe, yeah. And, you know, herbs and spices to make it taste nice, whereas malort is just pure wormwood. And it's one of those drinks where if you come to Chicago, eventually some Chicagoans are going to offer you a shot. And when you take this shot, either you will love it or you will hate it. Um, some people taste uh, say it tastes like a homeless person's asshole, and some people will say it tastes like grapefruit, uh, and most likely you will dislike it. But it's very, very um, unforgettable, and that's what I feel Chicago is. It is a shadow of malort.
0: I like that. That's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> unforgettable. No, that's cool. Um, your next one. You are approached by a random person on the street who likes your camera. It tells you He works on animation for Hollywood films. He wants you to take some pictures of a local mayor. Um, He then mentions dragons have been asleep for 2,000 years, but are now awake. What do you say to him?
1: Well, my first instinct is, where are they? I want to take pictures
0: of them. (laughs) Yes, yes, good point, yes. So, yeah, that's a good question to ask. Um, this is based on real life experience with me.
1: Oh, you met Dragons?
0: <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I just met the strange person. Oh, all right. It was a very surreal event um, that I was just walking down the high street where I live. And he literally just liked, uh, I had my Bronica, my medium format. And then he just started telling me some of the films he'd worked on as well. Which included Transformers. Wow, okay. And then his best, one of his close mates was, um, uh, oh, God, was it Michael Bay?
1: Yeah, the director. Yeah,
0: yeah. And mm-hmm. he's like, yeah, I'm trying to get him to fly over to come and meet the mayor. And I'm like, is this guy for real? Because, you know, it is possible that on a big film, you're going to have people in different countries. And Honestly, I meet so many people now that I've worked with NASA uh, in, in the IT world. So to me, it's not a huge jump for someone here. So I just thought he was saying, but then the minute he started talking about dragons, I was like, this guy's like, <laughs> yeah, a little bit strange. So, yeah, okay, that's cool. <laughs> um, You win the lottery. What is your first purchase?
1: hmm, I think I would open a very large IRA and max it out. I think I would invest this money. (laughs) So I'll have to explain why I gave such a boring answer. Um, You know, my parents are Vietnamese, so Mm -hmm. they left Vietnam in 68 um, on scholarship in New Zealand. So they they got out in the middle of the war. Um, And, you know, my parents were misers their entire life because they saved. Um, Because, you know, when they grew up, especially during the war... um, they you like abject crippling poverty, especially my mom. Mm-hmm. My mom's family, you know, my my grandpa on my mom's side. I never met him. He died before I was born. Was a relatively wealthy person in Vietnam. Um, he had a Citroen Traction Avant, which having a car in Vietnam is status. So he was pretty rich. But mm. when the war broke out, you know, he took his family and fled south. And you know, at times they were living in a two room um, apartment, not two bedroom, but a two room apartment, and That's my mom and her eight siblings and both of her parents. So um, they were very, very poor. And, you know, there's this legend, well, this kind of like tall tale that my mom says that, you know, in Vietnam, they have these wooden carvings of fish that they hang up on the wall. Mm -hmm. And then when you eat dinner, you eat rice with soy sauce and you look at the fish and you imagine you're eating fish because you can't even afford to eat fish. You can only imagine it. Wow. So in that sort of sense, I inherited a little bit of, you know, like, Miserliness for my parents. I, you know, I I, I want to save. If I had a million dollars, who knows what's going to happen five years from now? I might get my legs chopped off, and I need the money to survive. Or you know, who knows what? Yeah. So I'd I'd save it. Sorry, really boring answer.
0: <laughs> no, no, but that's that's you into, and that's the important thing. We we bring out the real you. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I don't I don't know if I I'm probably be the same. My, my wife has probably already got the billion pounds spent <laughs> on ideas. <laughs> She's, she's got the uh, letter ready to quit a job. She's got the passport ready. So <laughs> I, th- I said, I think you're dreaming, my darling. But, you know, there we go. Um, what did your parents tell you off for the most when you was young? Oh, um, this goes back to rice. Okay. Um, so
1: I was a skinny teenager. I'm still skinny now. Um, so around eighth grade I still weighed 110 pounds and my mom and my dad decided that I needed to gain weight so every day at dinner I would eat my two bowls of rice with you know meats or vegetables whatever and I'd Mm -hmm. finish and I'd be full and my dad would place one more bowl of rice in front of me and tell me now eat this and so I'd sit there full right and Mm -hmm. I'd be trying to eat this bowl of rice for half an hour just shoving spoons in my mouth and chewing it and you know like if if my mom wasn't looking I'd try to put the food back (laughs) <laughs> and so, like, I would get told off all the time that I need to eat more. And, like, oh, it was misery from, for, like, five years of my childhood. Every single day at dinner, I'd be sitting there after I was done having to eat another bowl of rice. Oh, <laughs> oh I know it's a bit of a, you know, a tangent. But, uh, you know, for a time after I left home, I couldn't eat rice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah. And I never gained weight. Uh, you know, I, I was still the same weight all through high school even with all that forced rice eating.
0: I was exactly the same. I was skinny all my life. Um, I think I only got a little bit bigger as I've turned late (laughs) thirties. So I waited a very long time. But people used to say to to me, um, you need to eat some more cakes and pies every day. (laughs) And you're like, it doesn't work like that. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, bless you. Um, Godzilla, hero or villain? Uh, it depends on what series
1: you're talking about, right? Um, mm-hmm. In most series, he's a sympathetic villain. Yes. Um, um, and in some series, he's just the plain out hero. Um, you know, my first exposure to Godzilla was in the, the movie with Matthew Broderick and Jean Renault, um, <laughs> the one where, uh, where Puff Daddy at the time made that music video, uh, which yeah. I love. I love that video. Um, so in that sense sympathetic
0: villain villain okay that's cool if your country was a brand which would it be first of all which country australia or the united states yeah i'll let you choose because you've got three to choose from
1: australia vegemite
0: all right (laughs) vegemite yeah that's a very different thing uh hate or love hate or love
1: yeah, just like Malort to Chicago, Vegemite is one of those things where you love it or you really, really hate it.
0: I think someone from Australia said that to me as well. <laughs> yeah, I think they've said that in the past. Um, the last one: it's nineteen sixty-three, and you're mm-hmm. at the Daily De- Plaza. You hear a sh- shot. You hear a gunshot nearby. Was it Lee Harvey Oswald?
1: You know, I don't really know. <laughs> I haven't bought into the, um, the cons- conspiracy theory stuff enough yeah. to definitively say like it was somebody else. Um, but yeah, let's just say it was Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, um, I-, I will say tangentially that the Lincoln Continental Convertible is a beautiful, beautiful car. Oh, yes. Yes.
0: Definitely something we can agree on. There. That's cool. So thank you very much for going through my random questions. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) That's cool. Um, So probably at the time now where uh, if you want to tell everybody where we can find um, your websites and your social feeds, that'll be cool. Sure.
1: Do you want me to type that in or should I? No, if you just tell
0: everybody and then I'll put it in the show notes for everybody anyway.
1: Right. Uh, My personal stuff is at twanhbui.com, and my work stuff, that is my wedding stuff, is at twanbui.com and uh my instagram handles are light comes through for personal and tuan Bico, t-u-a-n-b-c-o for my wedding stuff
0: thank you very much yep so we'll put the links to there so everyone can check that out um i hope everyone checks out um, twan's um latest dance stuff that's really cool on his personal side and there is some really cool uh wedding shots and he is quite right there's nothing about dresses rings shoes it is people and you know full respect to you, mate that's really nice Thank you. Uh, and then the last part of my show, um, I do this pay-it-forward scheme. Uh, so I know we've already discussed a few people. Who would you like to see on a future episode? Hmm. Okay. you recommend someone um, you can maybe put me in contact with or someone you really like?
1: Well, if you can get Julia fullerton batten on the show, that would be amazing.
0: Okay, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, <that's> I <it>. see.
1: <laughs> I don't know her personally, but I mean, maybe you can get her. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Anything's possible these days. It's it's actually right. amazing who uh, which people reply. Um sometimes it never ha- uh, never comes through at the end, but um yeah, no, oh, that's cool. And then if you can drop me some of them links he was on about earlier, that'd be really cool.
1: Sure, I'll do that.
0: Yeah, that's wicked. So all I have to say is thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you for spending um, a little over an hour with me.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's been a, a great pleasure. It's been lovely to find out about your lenses. Uh, it'd be lovely to see how you get on with your future 8B10 project.
1: <laughs> right.
0: I will be hassling you. Okay, look forward to it. <laughs> and otherwise, I will say goodnight, my friend. All right, cheers. Hey guys, thanks a lot for listening to that show. Uh, It was really good to uh, speak to Twan. he's obviously got some really beautiful work there. Um, Please uh, do check out the website so you can actually see more of his images. And obviously click on the links to go straight and look at his website and his Instagram feeds. You'll see um, a variety of work, Uh, obviously the wedding side. What well, you can see, his um, personal side is trying to take off into like projects and the skills he's currently learning. Um, he's a very nice, uh, gentle person, and he really came into it. I think the longer you listen to the podcast, so uh, yeah, I really do appreciate that. And you know, not everyone is um, uber confident at the beginning, um, but I hope you you've got a feeling of. Um, what he's all about and what a nice person he is uh, he's been nothing but helpful he sent me some lovely photos over for you to see so I, I hope you do check them out and then I'm going to try and um, scan in a couple of pictures uh, that he submitted to the magazine as well which is obviously how I found him so I think they're important to show as well because the um, Fuji Pack film does create a very very different look to other people And obviously actually shooting it on a large-format camera is just um, unbelievable. Um, The bouquet you see is very, very different. So, yeah, thanks again. And please don't forget to share uh, with your friends. Subscribe to the newsletter if you want to make it easy to see uh, who's on the show next. And uh, don't forget to leave those iTunes reviews, everybody. Thanks for listening and see you on the next one. Bye.